0: Tracy Smothers, Harley Race, Tim Storm, Bushwhacker Luke, Bobby Fulton. The Pro, Pro Wrestling, wrestling Book, Volume, volume one. One. Bill Dundee, Supermex Hernandez, C.W. Anderson, Ricky Morton, Sir Moe, and many others share their stories of determination, triumph, and, and sorrow. Get your book today at Russellville.com or at Amazon.com. Russellville, Russellville. It's, it's wrestling, wrestling. Bill. You're listening to the Russellville Podcast. I'm your host, Vinny Berry, and today's guest is Brian Solomon, wrestling writer and historian. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing
1: great, Vinny. Thanks, thanks for having me on here. It's it's always a lot of fun to talk about wrestling history and stuff that I love.
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm really excited to have you on, and our our paths have crossed a a little bit since I've been writing about wrestling, and uh, you know. I know who you are out there in the wrestling world and so it's exciting for me to talk to you because i know you have a a lot of uh interesting stories to to share give us a a brief description of your career and what you've been doing
1: sure uh well i mean as it pertains to wrestling we'll we'll stick with that part of it but i um i've been a contributing writer to pro wrestling illustrated now on and off for 15 years but I'm in every issue now for the last year or two. Um, I also write for Inside the Ropes magazine. I'm the co-host of the PWI podcast. I just launched my own podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle, um, on the Arcadian Vanguard Network. And um, I've written so far three books on professional wrestling. I wrote WWE Legends in 2006. I wrote Pro Wrestling FAQ 2015 and my latest one, which I know we're gonna be talking about, but it comes out April 12th, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic. I also wanna mention real quick, cause I think some people still know me from this, even though at this point it was a long time ago, but for seven years I worked for WWE. I was a writer and editor on WWE Magazine and the other publications in WWE's publications department from 2000 to 2007.
0: So that's, that's quite a, quite a history in the wrestling industry. Uh, obviously it's something you love. You, you followed your passion. How did you, how did you start writing for, for these wrestling organizations?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I had, uh, I've been a fan since I was probably in junior high school, um, or middle school as they call it now, but I, um, you know, I, I first started wanting to write about it probably when I was in college. And I had a actually had a column in the college newspaper in Brooklyn College, the Kingsman. And I used to write about wrestling there. And I I even used to cover independent wrestling in Brooklyn, where I lived, for just the neighborhood newspapers, just thinking, you know, I'm a kid. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to become like a a wrestling writer, you know, thinking I'd be like, you know, made in the shade. Right. I didn't know what I was doing, but I would send clips and things to the magazines, because in those days, there were still a lot of wrestling magazines around and to some newspapers and stuff. I really got nowhere with it. I kind of gave it up, got a real job out of college. Uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, getting married and all this stuff and I just happened to be in the market, you know, and the, and the job that I had was writing related. I mean, that's what I studied in school was English lit and I, you know, I wanted to be a writer, but when I, um, was getting married and, um, I was looking for something a little better than the job I had, it just so happened. I mean, uh, there's no crazy story to it. WWF had an ad in the New York times in the classified section, looking for a copy editor for their publications and creative services and things like that. I went in, I interviewed several times for the job. I didn't think I was gonna get it. It took like three months of interviewing and hand-wringing and waiting for phone calls. And I got the job and I I got my foot in the door in in, uh, the beginning of 2000 as a copy editor, which is basically a proofreader for them. And then when I was there long enough and they saw that I kind of knew the business, I was a fan and I could write, They started giving me more responsibilities. You know, they made me a writer and eventually then that that I became an editor. And and in a couple of years I was running the magazines practically.
0: And that's, that's pretty incredible. And what was some of the things that you learned was I'm I'm sure working for WWE, they, they have a certain way of doing things. Was it easy for you to adapt to their style or uh, did you kind of learn on the job as, as as far as how they do things.
1: I got, you know, they call it Titan Training. That's what they used to call it. They probably still do, even though the company is not Titan anymore. It was Titan Sports still at the time. They called it Titan Training. And, you know, they do teach you a certain way. And it goes beyond just, everybody knows that the wrestlers are taught a certain way. But I mean, I came into the company as a wrestling fan, but as somebody that had grown up with, uh, that had been reading more of the independent magazines, like Pro Wrestling Illustrated, The Wrestler, Inside Wrestling, and other magazines. And so I had been trained by that point of view of how to write about wrestling in a certain way. And I, I did have to retrain myself. And I did get a better perspective because when you're on the inside of it, you, you do learn. And I know sometimes fans don't like to hear this, but you do learn that it is a lot about entertainment. This is an entertainment company. You know, it's like working for something like Disney or, you know, or or Warner Media or something. Like you are inside of an entertainment company. And so there are certain rules of how you want to write about it, how you want to treat it, how you want to approach it. And so um, I I feel like I gained a lot by working in that system because um, I got a chance to write for, you know, for example, we had WWE magazine, which was the worked magazine. So we got to write in storyline kind of things, which was a lot of fun, but we had to make sure it was in line with what was happening on TV. So that teaches you a certain kind of discipline. But then I got to also do things like for Raw Magazine, if you remember Raw Magazine, where we were a little more loosened up and we were writing for an older readership. And we could be a little more real, even though like it was it wasn't really a shoot, but it was like a work shoot kind of thing. And, and you know, a lot there was a lot of truth and reality in there. Different kind of writing, you know, almost like writing for Sports Illustrated or something. And it, I mean, it was like baptism by fire. And I'm I, that those seven years there were like formative for me. So I'm glad that I went through it
0: you know, you're, you're working with people. Well, Vince McMahon is there, right? He's got to be probably one of the smartest people in the rooms when it comes to pro wrestling, or, you know, he, he has a certain way of doing things, you know, me sitting where I'm sitting, of course, I'm questioning, why, what why are they doing it like that? Or why are they, why are they doing, doing it this way? I'm not sitting at a billion dollar, <laughs> you know, I'm not sitting on a billion, billion dollar company. You know, right, he right. he is. So, you know, I guess I, I, you know, he obviously knows what he's doing, but yeah, to have that experience has got to be incredible. And how, how much was Vince in your ear? Did he ever pull you to the side and say, Hey, or, or did you work with, I'm sure you work with a lot of people under Vince, but did you ever have an opportunity to work with Vince uh, as far as the writing or did he ever share anything that that he'd like to see from you
1: yeah you know uh, because a long time while I was there we were working for Shane Uh, Shane was the head of our department for years while I was there and so because I mean I would have people in between us sometimes sometimes I reported directly to him and because of that, then you get a certain exposure to Vince than you would if, if you were working for any other department. So I probably got a little more feedback than I ever would have even wanted, to be honest with you, because I wound up in boardroom meetings with him and, you know, getting I was in limousines with him and stuff and one on one conversations. And sometimes it would go well. Sometimes he seemed very uh, appreciative of the work we did and very much you could tell he was actually a wrestling fan and pretty nostalgic. Like he'd be talking about the old days and things, and it was fascinating, you know? And then sometimes, though, you'd see the other side of Vince for sure, you know, with the TV character. I mean, I had a time when I was, I've talked about this, but I was pitching him a magazine ideas. I don't even know why they put me in this position, but in the boardroom, you know, with the board of directors or whoever was there in a board meeting. And he's sitting there, you know, pretending to fall asleep while, while I'm pitching these ideas to him. And then he tells me that, um, you know, I needed to take my head out of Dave Meltzer's ass because I guess he didn't like the ideas that that I was coming up with and somehow connected it to Dave Meltzer. So, I mean, sometimes you'd get that Vince and sometimes you'd get like the, the, the warm and kind of like very interesting and intelligent Vince, you know, a fascinating, mysterious guy for sure to work with. And I got closer to him than, I wasn't close to him, but I mean, I worked in a closer capacity to him than I ever would have expected when I went to work for that company. That's for sure.
0: Right, right. And a lot of people said that he was the the, the hardest worker in the room, you know, that he'd be there right. around the clock in different times where people wouldn't expect to see him. And there he would be. That's true. That's
1: true. Because, you know, he would set that example and sometimes people would hate it because, he would have expectations of people, you know, that weren't always maybe the most realistic, but, but because he would be, his attitude would be, I'm doing this. I'm the owner, you know, I'm the boss and I'm doing this. I'm making this my life. So everyone else should make it their life. And sometimes, sometimes it doesn't quite work that way, but I mean, we would hear stories like, you know, if you worked closely with them, like if you're on the writing team or whatever, which sometimes they would, asked me if I wanted to do and I would always turn it down I'm glad I did but you were on call 24 7 I mean he can call you in the middle of the night you'd have to come in or we would hear things like and I believe this that he hardly ever sleeps at night you know three four hours a night boom boom boom, and he's up and he's back to doing you know whatever he needs to do or that you know people have talked about this before too like that he's he's not he doesn't do a whole lot outside of work like He doesn't if you bring up movies to him, he hasn't seen it. He doesn't know what you're talking about. You know, like the most the most common cultural references because he's so focused on his business. Like, you know, today we're dealing with the news, the unfortunate news of Scott Hall. There's that famous story of Razor Ramon when Scott Hall, I guess they were involved with coming up with the Razor Ramon gimmick. And Scott Hall said, hey, I could do an impression of Tony Montana. What, what if we did something like that? You know, I got my slick back hair and he's doing say hello to the bad guy. Vince had no idea what he was talking about, you know, and that is whether you like the movie or not, I think it's overrated, but it's one of the most classic movies of all time. Never heard of it. Didn't know who Tony Montana was. So that that tells you a lot about you know how buried in his work he is.
0: Yeah, it really does. You know, and you got to give him credit for the dedication and and the love for for what he does whether you know whether he does it the way that everybody wants him to do it or not so i kind of think that you know sometimes he just turns the tables for the sake of turning the tables you know sure you know yeah
1: yeah and and he's very i mean he's involved with everything like people have said this but he's in gorilla position on headset through every show so it's almost like um yeah, he stopped being an announcer on TV at the end of 1997, but he really never did because he's producing all those announcers. It's almost like he's still out there and they're his his proxy, you know, because it's hard for him to let go of things. We used to make a joke all the time in there that this would be like if you were working for Disney and Michael Eisner, who was the head of Disney at the time, if Michael Eisner had to approve, you know, goofy baseball caps, Right. It would be the most ridiculous thing in the world, but that's kind of the way WWE is run.
0: Right. And and looking back on on your time there at WWE, if you if you look at where you're at today in your in your writing style or in your career, when what was maybe one thing that you picked up working there that you kind of adapted to in your in your writing style today or something that when you when you do work on a project today that one thing that kind of comes out in your forefront that you know you picked up from wwe well this is
1: not necessarily something that you just need to be at wwe to pick up but one thing that i would always get uh focused on and that it it was a good exercise in terms of writing uh was you know when i came to work there i was mainly doing a lot of nonfiction and writing like encyclopedia reference book kind of stuff pretty dry you know little short biographies of people and so when i was writing with wwe i would they would always put the focus on what's the hook here what's the angle how do you get people interested in this story it can't just be beginning middle and end you have to start in a way that makes them not want to stop reading you know cuz the average person A lot of times it's going to look at the first paragraph and maybe just turn the page and see what's on the next page. So you want to like grab them. So every time I have an article to write, let's say, or the chapter of a book, the first thing I'm thinking of is what is my hook here? And it's not just going to be the beginning of the story. And I always tell writers that, that I work with, like new writers or people just starting, don't just think about where does my story start? You know, that's not where you want it to start where the story starts. It's not where you want the piece to start. You're looking for the interesting detail or the interesting angle. That's what you open with. Like an example from a few years ago, it just popped into my head. I did a story with, uh, what's the name? He's a wrestler, a UK WWE wrestler. He was the first NXT UK champion, Tyler Bate. Tyler Bate, do you know him? I do. So he was the first NXT UK champion and they wanted me before Walter, you know, and they wanted me to do a profile of him for PWI, an article. And I'm like, this is a young guy. He's 19 years old. He just won his first title. He's one of the youngest champions ever. Like, I don't really know, you know, I, I don't want this to be boring. Like, Oh, he was born in England and he was a wrestling fan, blah, blah, blah. Every story starts that way. So I did a little research on the guy and I found out, He's directly descended from one of the, um, you know, Guy Fawkes Day in the UK, where um, I forget the day. I think it's in like November or December. It commemorates a ter- there was a terrorist plot in the 17th century against Parliament, where they tried to blow up Parliament, and there were these anarchists, I guess, who tried to blow it up. the The, the mask from V for Vendetta, that that okay. famous man, is based on that. The, uh, so. One of the conspirators who tried to blow up Parliament was a direct ancestor of Tyler Bate, like father to son, direct. And I'm like, this is my angle. This is how I start my story. Like, I, I got to think of a hook. The minute I saw that, it jumped out and hit me in the face. I'm like This is how my story starts. Or well, when I did the sheet book, um, I was going through old newspapers and online, of course, but I found a story that. I'd never heard anywhere else. I don't think anyone knew it of, uh, there was the Lansing uh, newspaper in, in the town where he grew up in Lansing, reported on when he ran away from home as a 12 year old boy with his friends and they hitchhiked, they were trying to get to California and they hitchhiked about 35 miles before the police caught up with them. And they even had a quote from him In the story where he said something like as a boy they're like well what do you the sheriff says what were you guys up to and he said we were trying to get to where the money is in california where it's sunny all the time and i'm going this is a 12 year old boy saying this recruiting his friends to hitchhike across the country to california and i'm going like clearly this guy was destined for greatness as a child look at this kid you know and i'm going that's where my story starts not in syria not when he was born not with his first match with this little seemingly unimportant story and that's how the book starts
0: and and that's a good place to go ahead and start our conversation of of one of the reasons why i brought you on here today Uh, tell us what the name of the book is brian
1: so the name of the book which came to me in a flash like that when I first started writing it is blood and fire. And the subtitle is uh, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic.
0: How did this all come about?
1: Well, I had been always been interested in the chic Uh, like you. I think he was a little before my time and Detroit wrestling was already gone. By the time I started being a wrestling fan, I just found it really fascinating because, um, He seemed to really be the most real in terms of how frightening he was to people in terms of how he could draw money as a heel because people were so afraid of him and hated him so much and wanted him to lose. And he seemed to have so much power and the territory also that he ran, which, by the way, he, he traveled all over the country and the world. But that home base that he had, it was one of the most successful companies in the business for a handful of years but it hardly gets talked about anymore because they went out of business way before the WWF even spread nationwide. So I thought this story needs to be told and you know in in coming across information about him in the previous books I had done I kept saying in the back of my head I got to tell this guy's story eventually because I kept going you know I can't think of another wrestling star at his level who has never had a book written about them. I really can't think of one, especially from that era, especially an old school star. You know, maybe there are people currently wrestling, but an old school star, if there were any, they were not as big of a star as the Sheik. So I'm going... Okay, we got to fix this. I mean, this is a major, especially such a mysterious figure that people honestly didn't know about. You can't just go on the internet and read all about the Sheik's life like you could do with a lot of other wrestlers. So, right. you know, I wanted to do this to tell that story.
0: Right. You know, he was always the to me like the enig, uh, you know, like an enigma. You know, I mean, it's like I believe he was done wrestling by the time I got into it, or right on the cusp of. Cause I'd see him in some of the magazines. I started, you know, as a, as a wrestling fan, like in 82, and I would see him or, or like, you know, just see little things about him. And I didn't know who he was. Of course that time I knew of the Iron Sheik who was in WWF. And I was like, this, this can't be the same guy, you know? And, but he had this, you know, like this, uh, this, this, uh, dangerous prowess about him. Like, you know, like, you know, you read things about him, uh, like cutting people with, with glass or poking them with pencils and stuff like that. And it was in fire and I was it's like, wow, I mean, this, this is crazy stuff, you know?
1: Right. No, exactly. And I remember too coming across a similar experience I talked about this on, on Brian last show where um, there was an issue of the Wrestler Magazine. I guess it was the 25th anniversary of the Wrestler Magazine, which came out, at, that issue came out in 1991. And I was just, I had been a wrestling fan for a couple of years, didn't know a lot about the Sheik because I mainly just knew WWF. And I'm looking through the magazine. There's a picture of a referee, California referee named Red Shoes Dugan. He was, you know, legendary referee out there, beloved. And the sheik apparently had burned him in a match. It was a match against Pampero Ferpo, which I later found out. And they had a picture of a close up picture of Red Shoes Dugan's face. All, and it looked looking at this thing like he'd really been burned, you know. And I, and I later just, you know, through the writing of the book, I started to discover how they would uh, approximate and, 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 and kind of do burns in the same way that they do bleeding in a way to make it look like you know they have they have methods for making somebody look burned so i'm looking but but i didn't know that and i'm looking at his face going is this real like i don't understand i thought wrestling was a show like even at see i'm i'm 16 17 years old and i'm going did it used to be real like w- was this guy real and maybe the other people weren't and you know those kind of questions it was easier to ask them back then we didn't have the internet there was a lot more mystery I don't think you could pull off a character like the sheik today for example and i think it's so much harder to create the kind of mystique that he had um the mystery uh, and i and i even cover that in the book too how how he was of his time it was a moment in time that's gone and he represented that and i wanted so that's why too i write more about not, not just about his him and his own life but about everything around him and the business and what it was like back then and how it changed because it really was this moment that I I don't think we'll ever get back. It was very unique.
0: You know, you talked about how his, his promotion was, was thriving, right? How, how it was doing rather well. Do you think that uh, because of his, his style, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he was like the main eventer on his own promotion, right? That's basically how, you know, they, they did it. Then if you were, if that was your promotion, you know, they, they kind of didn't want anybody taking care of the baby, you know, except themselves. He had to be one of the main reasons why that place was successful. Right. I mean, he was the draw people wanted to, to see his antics.
1: Yeah. He made himself that, that draw, you know, before he was running it, he was wrestling in that area, but he wasn't quite the main event yet. He was still kind of a mid-carder, maybe upper mid-card. There were other parts of the country where he had main-evented here and there. But it was really when he took over that he had that prerogative to put himself in that spot. And his style also got wilder and crazier because there wasn't anybody to tell him not to do it. <laughs> and then it started really getting over, and other promoters wanted to bring him in and have him do all that crazy stuff, too. Um, so. It worked, but then of course it worked until it didn't work anymore. He was one of those guys that couldn't let it go. Uh, Vern Gagne was like that a little bit in the NWA, but even he stepped away at a certain point and tried to move on. The Sheik never really did that. And he kept having himself on top. He kept having himself go over, which if you're a hated heel, Eventually, your audience gets demoralized. They just give up. They're like, well, I guess this guy's never going to go or leave or lose. And you just get tired of waiting for him to lose. And so the, the territory lost a lot of heat. There were a lot of other reasons. But from a creative point of view, that was a big reason. It got very stale. Same people at the top, same feuds, same matches, and the chic almost always going over.
0: Right. And you you talked about crazy stuff that he did crazy stuff. What are some of the things that he he did? We've already mentioned like, you know, like the the pencils or and and uh, the fire and stuff like that. But I mean, he really was a shocker. Right. I mean, he he did some stuff that people were like, what's going on? And my next question would be, you know, did he ever get any backlash for that stuff? because back then you're talking about the 60s and the 70s that was kind of uncharted territory for wrestling like that am i am i right well you know
1: part of it was that people believed more back then and so you could do more with that when they believed like that's why when i say like the sheet could never you could never have a sheet today that's part of why i think that's true so if he came out and he was who he was i think he would people would laugh And I hate to think that way. And I hate to say that, but, you know, he'd he'd be uh, laughed at and he'd have to either go along with it and become almost like a comedy wrestler in a way, something like the Bushwhackers or something, you know, or change his gimmick. But because people believed you could push it a lot further, like like he there are stories and pictures and things of him just moving through the crowd and people parting like the Red Sea, just terrified of him. And all he would have to do is jerk a certain way or turn and, and flash an eye and people would run. And I'm talking grown men. I'm not just talking kids and things, big, strong men running for their lives because of the fear that he would strike in people. I mean, I, I, I was told that he would keep, um, you know, a lot of times wrestlers, of course, have blades on them or they have little little pieces of blades taped to their fingers or on their body and things. But he was known to even use them against non-wrestlers if he had to, or at least have them there in case, because there would be a lot of riots. And he could, (laughs) Lenny Poffo told a story about he saw him slash a fan or something in the middle of a riot because the fan was physically threatening him. And he slashed the guy and he couldn't believe his own eyes that he saw him do it and do it so easily. So, you know, it was a different world back then. It was less litigious. There was no social media. There was less attention on things. And I think, too, but there still were lawsuits back then. I mean, I, you know, you'll hear sometimes Jim Cornette does this hilarious thing on his podcast where they look back on old lawsuits that were filed against wrestlers and stuff. And it's amazing. But I talked to one guy who has since passed. He was a photographer named Terry Dart. And he told a story about how the Sheik took his camera once and smashed it on the on the ground just because he was in character and, and he just was in the moment. And he Terry was extremely upset and wanted to file a lawsuit against him and went to a lawyer. And the problem was he didn't know what the guy's name was and he had no way of finding out or no way that he was aware of finding out in those days. So he had to just let it go. So, I mean, it it was, it was like the wild west. It was a crazy, crazy time, uh, in, in wrestling and in just entertainment and the country.
0: Right. You know, in, in inside the ring, he was this fierce, vicious, character right this this guy that was everyone was afraid of but you know if you talk to people who've known him and i and i talked to one person who had met him and uh you know wasn't i I guess real close but had like a working relationship with him and and saw him many times and was uh roger ruffin and right he, he describes him as just a very nice guy and just you know but that's something, you know, unless you had that opportunity to be around him, you may not get the chance to see that. Because we talked about he was, as you said, in character almost all the time.
1: Right. He was very guarded about it. And so, like, if he was in public, he was the sheik. And he was very protective about who got to see the real him, the real Ed Farhat. So, like, when he went backstage, once he came back through that curtain, he was Ed Farhat again. You know, because he had a show to run, he was the boss. A lot of people thought that he never turned it off. I mean, that would be crazy if you think about it. He had a company to run, he had a family, he had children. He couldn't literally be the chic all the time, but he worked very hard to convince people that maybe he was like that. That's how real he was, and how he was able to pull it off. Um, You know, he would um, around his friends, he would be himself, and sometimes he would have people over the house. And he would still be cautious about who he showed his true self to. Kevin Sullivan told me that he would go over his house. He had this big estate, this big like uh, um mansion, and the heels he would have wrestlers over to eat in these big feasts. And the heels and faces would have to sit at different tables in his house, oh, if right. you could imagine that.
0: Yeah. And you're, you're, you're sharing some wonderful, wonderful stuff. Thank you. What was the process on this book what was it like working on this and you know it's got to be definitely challenging because you can't go to ed anymore right
1: right and there's hardly anybody i could go to honestly that really knew him well um the family was not involved in the project um there is there weren't many of them left anyway who knew him to tell you the truth Both of his sons passed away during the writing of this book. I was in communication with them off and on. But, um, you know, Bobo Brazil's gone, who was his main rival. Wild Bull Curry, a lot of the major stars of that era. I did get to talk to Terry Funk, who worked closely with him. And I mentioned Kevin Sullivan, who came along a little later. Um, Flying Fred Curry, who, Flying Fred Curry, I would have to say one of the only, if not the only, uh, major long term stars of big time wrestling in Detroit that's still with us. And I was able to talk to him. He's up in upstate Connecticut, not too far from where I live. But, you know, I did get some really amazing interviews with people. A lot of times they were people who knew him, but they came along later. You know, and they were so there, you know, they when when the Sheik was in his prime, they might have been extremely young or maybe they knew him right at the end of his career. So part of that was a challenge too, to to cut through that, like Lani Poffo is a good example of that. The Poffos worked for the Sheik in Detroit in the 70s when they were just breaking in. It's like Randy Savage had some of his very first matches in the Detroit territory and their father, Angelo Poffo, was very close with the Sheik. So Lanny had some great stories and things, but again, like Lanny was right at the beginning of his career, very young wrestler and the Sheik was at the end of his career and past his prime. And that's when they kind of crossed paths. So there was a lot of that too. So it was like, it was kind of like detective work piecing the story together. And I had to make it more than just information coming from interviews. I I had to take other routes too, because there's only so far I could get with that.
0: You know, and I've, I've heard that, sabu is related right isn't he the nephew yeah Yeah, sabu
1: is the son of of sheik's younger sister who was the baby sister there were 11 brothers and sisters uh the sheik was the youngest boy and uh his sister genevieve was the youngest girl and the youngest child and sabu was her son
0: was sabu of any help with this project
1: uh well the issue with some wrestlers and he's one of them is that um it becomes a money thing you know and just just be totally frank i had the same issue with abdullah the butcher who i would have loved to speak to but the problem is you know i think people sometimes think that books make a lot more money than they really do (laughs) if we're making a movie okay yeah absolutely we can you know but a book you know you're talking about well i mean i'm making to write the damn book, probably what I would have, what I would make in about six weeks as a high school English teacher, right, which was, was my, you know, full-time profession. I would, so we're not talking about big bucks here. So like, if we start paying everybody to be interviewed, then there's no book anymore because there's no profit. There's no way to make any money. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and so that was a deal breaker. However, uh, you know, there was no animosity, of course, and his book, his biography was a great help to me with a lot of his recollections in it anyway. And also there's shoot interviews out there. So in the end, I felt as much as I would have loved to have spoken to him, it wasn't necessary. It still would have been preferable, but I was able to get a lot of his insights. I also was good friends with his girlfriend, Melissa Coates, who passed away. And she would help me from time to time. She got me a copy of the book and she would you know, sometimes she'd try to convince and persuade Sabu to help me out and work with me. And I got little pieces of info here and there. But for the most part, I had to work around that.
0: Well, that that's very commendable to take on a project like that where, where you know, it's you're really going to have to be quite the investigator. You know, you're going to have to knock on a lot of doors and really, uh, you know do a lot of research. And yeah, I commend you for taking on a project because some people would look at that thing and say, well, you know, it might be a little too hard. Yeah,
1: I know. I discovered in the middle of doing it, I'm like, oh, so this is why nobody ever tried to do this. I get it now. This is why everybody was scared away. But the thing about it with me is I'm a professional writer. If wrestling didn't exist, God forbid, I'd still be a professional writer. I'd just be writing about other things. I was a professional writer before I started writing about wrestling. So what I tried to bring to the table is, yes, the information is not as readily available. Yes, there are you know, blind spots and holes and things that we can't know. But because I work really hard on my writing style and making the story interesting and trying to tell it in a compelling way, not just a bunch of facts and information, I use that to carry the book and to carry the narrative a lot of the way to make it look better. So it's not just a pile of random facts that I was able to collect. It's how do you shape this into a story? What's the theme? It's not just this guy was born, he became a wrestler, he died. You know, I mean, you want a theme. There's there's interesting things going on here. There's an immigrant story, you know, a success story. There's the rise and fall of a a wrestling empire here, you know, and there's also, like I was saying, it's almost like his path intersecting with all these other things going on through wrestling history. And how was he connected to it? How did it affect him? You know, uh, the bigger picture of the whole business. So I'm thinking in these big picture terms that carried me along when there were times where I was like, whoa, this is like, I don't, you know, this is a big mystery here. There's a lot of what ifs and questions and, and random facts. It's all about how you present it.
0: Right. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who could look at the Sheik's career and say, Hey, you know, he's probably, you know, 85, 90% responsible for what we call hardcore wrestling.
1: Oh, yeah. they Of course, they wouldn't have called it back then. They wouldn't have called it that. But uh, yeah, I mean, he he's a, among a handful of people that played a part in creating um, you know, hardcore wrestling became something very different later on, you know, like the Sheik wasn't putting people through tables and things. And there wasn't, you know, a, a, and it wasn't to the degree of what you'd see later in places like ECW or like CCW and things, but he laid the groundwork among other people like Wild Bull Curry, and there was Irish Danny McShane, even going back to the 40s and 50s, who they started to introduce this roughhouse style where you had, it wasn't just about wrestling, where you had, uh, or even just about brawling, where you'd have chairs and you'd have a lot of blood and you'd have sharp objects being introduced. And you'd have people whose entire working style really didn't involve any holds or wrestling moves, but it was compelling as hell and it was intense and you never knew what was going to happen. That's the hardcore ethos, right? That he like built and laid the foundations for. So even though like, I don't think he would have, approved of everything that came later in the same way. Like you see sometimes when people influence a certain thing and then they see like, Oh, this really got out of control. You know, I don't know how he would have felt because I mean, he, he could actually wrestle and he was brought up in the old school way, but for better or worse. Yes. He's like the godfather of it for sure. Or one of them. Yeah. The fire too. I mean, yeah, all that stuff
0: while you were working on this project and and when you got I guess to the end and and where you sit back now and you're you're kind of looking at the final final piece of work and what what is it that was like I had no idea about that when I started this well what was the maybe some of the things that kind of took you back or kind of surprised you going through all this?
1: There were a lot of things like that. I mean, so many, you know, I discovered certain things that I discovered that contradicted, I think what was thought to be commonly accepted about his life too, because I think he was working people like a lot of these old wrestlers would do, you know, I I acquired his military record. So I was able to track like what, division he was in what company you know he was in george patton's army when did he go there i was able to track the, you know because i knew what division he was in i was able to track where he was because you could find records of that where each division went in the war so but i was able to find like you know he would tell people that he was um a tank that he was a commanded a tank squadron or I heard stories that he was a a drill sergeant or something like that. Well, the reality is he was only 19 years old when he went there. So it's highly doubtful that he was a sergeant. It's highly doubtful that he commanded a tank squadron. I did find out that he drove a tank. So you see like that's where it starts, the urban legends, right? So I went to the source of it. He did drive a tank, which because he was a machine worker living in Detroit, that was his livelihood. Before wrestling, he was on the assembly line in the auto factories, and he knew how cars worked and things. They put him in a tank. So, you know, I would cut through a lot of times the myth of things, like um, there would always be stories. Like, you know how you'd hear, oh, George the Animal Steel, he's, he was a college professor. Did you know that? You know, and then you, you dig through it and you find out, well, he was a football coach and he was, a, he was a gym instructor. So there's like a kernel of truth, right? So people would say about the Sheik he went to the University of Michigan and he, he was a star football player and all this sort of thing. And I found out those things were not true. And I had to be very cautious because you don't want to say something like that and you turn out to be wrong. I mean, that your whole credibility comes falling down. But what I discovered was not only did he not go to University of Michigan, he didn't go to any university, he didn't go to high school. Um, he finished at some point either between fifth and eighth grade. I'm thinking it was eighth that's based on his military record. And I think that over time, he wound up getting confused with an older brother that he had who had a very similar sounding name to his. His name was, the Sheik's name was Edward. His brother's name was Edmund. Why in the world you would name two boys Edward and Edmund in the same family? I do not know. But he would often get confused with him in the press. Like people would be researching him and think that it was him, but it was actually Edmund, he went to university, he was a star athlete, he was a coach and all these other things. And the Sheik, I think, encouraged that confusion because it only added to his legend. And those are the kind of things that I was able to cut through in the course of writing the book.
0: What do you hope that readers take from this this book and what do you hope that they get out of it? I'm hoping that, you know, obviously the book is going
1: to have appeal. To people who loved the Sheik, people who grew up in that era as fans, for sure, that easily. People that were Detroit wrestling fans are going to eat it up. You know, Supermouth Dave Drayson, who was a big Detroit wrestling guy and he was the Sheik's last manager, and he's kind of an icon on the Detroit wrestling scene, he's championed this book. And I'm grateful to him for that. But I'm hoping even beyond that, that wrestling fans that, like me, were too young for the Sheik, that maybe only know about the Iron Sheik, that want to learn. Well, keep an open mind and pick this book up because it has so much to teach. You know, like me, this is how I learned about wrestling history by looking beyond just what I saw as a kid and what I remembered. And, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be writing a book about the Sheik. So I think it could have a wide appeal if people give it a chance to all kinds of wrestling fans. As long as you have some kind of an interest in the history of wrestling, I would say give it a shot. And I would even go beyond that. In ECW press, I think they think I'm nuts, but I think even if you're not a wrestling fan, I, it's a it's a it's a fascinating story—the story of his life in the in this crazy world of entertainment, which is what it was. Um, I think is is worth reading about, and and it's so unique, and and such a a testament of you know, kind of like the history even of entertainment in America in that era and sports too. So I think it has a lot to offer and I I don't want it to just be pigeonholed as it's a great book for people who love the chic, which of course I would hope that it would be, but it's a lot more than that too.
0: If you would, Brian, just go ahead and tell us where can we get this book? Where can wrestling fans find this project? Really, it, it, you can get
1: it anywhere you get books online, obviously. But Amazon is probably the most ideal place because they have the largest inventory, and that's where you know most people get their books online. So um, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com is carrying it. I'm also hoping that you know once the release date comes, which like you say, by the time that they're listening to this, it may have already happened, that you should be able to find it in major bookstores as well. If you could find major bookstores, but you know Barnes and Noble. We'll have it um, front and center in their wrestling and sports section. So, I mean, but like I said, Amazon's probably the best way. There's a, there's a print version. There's a digital version for download, which you can also get. And I am working on an audiobook version, which I actually start recording as we're speaking now here today. Uh, this week, I'm going to start recording it. So my guess is that may not be available for a few months after, but there will be an audiobook version as well.
0: Oh, that's good to know. All right. Where can fans find you on social media? Where go ahead and
1: sure. Okay. Well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Brian R Solomon. And if they want to check me out on Facebook too, I have a page called pro wrestling FAQ, which is where I put most of my wrestling content. I have an author webpage, which kind of has a clunky URL, but if you go to my social media you will find the url for my author webpage where i have a lot of updates and like i said to at the beginning i'm the co-host of the pwi podcast and my own podcast i have called shut up and wrestle which uh, you can find at suawpod.com or you know spotify apple podcast google podcast wherever you get them it'll be there and it's an old school wrestling podcast so i'm hoping people really will dig that
0: yeah, so there's definitely a lot of work out there uh, that you've been doing and done. So, yeah, it'll be enough to keep people busy after they, you know, for those who may not know who you are, they will now, and and then they'll they'll know where to find your work. So that's great. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank thanks for having me on here. This is always fun. I had I had a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you giving me the time. I, I'm I'm excited for the the story itself. So it's uh, was was fun to kind of uh listen to the stories that you know like i like you said uh i'm familiar with some of the folklores but Mm. you know and and i think a lot of people are when it does come to wrestling stories when i was working on the lance von eric book um even after people read the book they still had this idea of what they've been reading on on the internet for you know 20 years and it's like obviously, you didn't read the book, or you're just, you know, right, right, hard set on believing what you want to believe. But you know, it's, it's just a, it's just a strange thing, you know, and and and, but yeah, it's, it's easy to uh, just believe what you've been hearing for all these years. And, and, and I think the book's going to clear up that for me, uh, what I thought about the sheik. so
1: Thank you. Yeah. And, and I even make a point in the book to say if I'm not certain about a story or something, if it's something that I don't feel comfortable stating as a fact, I let the reader know, look, this may or may not be true. You know, this may, it may have gone down like this. Here's an alternate version of this. You know, I try to be very transparent about that if I don't know if something's true.
0: Right. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to the book coming out and if you have more work coming in the future, please just know that you're welcome to come back anytime. All right, Vinny. Thank you. You're listening to the Russellville podcast where wrestling lives. you ever wondered what happened to Lance Von Erich? find out in his new book, Lance by Chance, Wrestling as a Von Erich. You'll read stories about Chris Adams, Ric Flair, and Billy Jack Haynes, and of course, the Von Erich family themselves. Get your book today on Amazon. Bring the bell radio. Listen to J.D., Barris, and Logan talk, talk about wrestling, wrestling news, news, reviews, in-depth, in-depth conversations, conversations, and interviews podcast that we want to hear and you will to ring the bell later. we call it in the ring B-W-Z podcast, B-W-Z podcast. With Rick Del Santo. For all your wrestling reviews, interviews, and news, Rick covers the United Wrestling Network, the NWA, N-W-A-, N-W-A- W-A- W-A- and the Northeast region of the United States Independence. P-W-C-P-W-C-P-W-C. PWC, 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 in the zone.